Welcome to the Living Godcast. Our prayer is that this message speaks to you, impacts you, and inspires you. Please enjoy today's message, and we invite you to contact us if you need prayer, appreciate this word, or would like more information on Church of the Living God. Be blessed today. Amen. It is an honor and a privilege to be here, and I'm, I'm glad all of you are here. I'm even more glad that the King is here. Amen. Well, look at the person next to you and say, hey, you look good this morning. Now turn back to him and say, you look better because I'm sitting next to you. It is sit by me Sunday, and you've all made each other look good. By sitting with each other. Now, I, I appreciate that you guys came out this morning. And, and like Pastor Matt said, the Lord doesn't show up on accident. So when we pray and when we invite him, he is so merciful and so gracious to come into the room, to sweep through these aisles and through these seats with his presence and to touch our hearts. And so I pray that as we continue in this worship and in the word that he would continue to minister to our hearts today. If you have your Bibles, we're going to head to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is really a collection mostly of three parables or sort of allegories, if you want to think of it like that, that Jesus used to teach, to teach about the love of God. And really to show us or to shine a light on us so that introspectively we can see ourselves characterized in these three stories. The first one he tells is about a little lost sheep that goes wandering away. And he says the good shepherd leaves the 99 to find the one. And he carries the one back on his shoulders into town to celebrate that which was lost now being reclaimed. The second story is about a woman who has a collection of coins, very precious coins. They were valuable to her, and one day, one of those coins is misplaced. And so Jesus describes that she sweeps the house. You ever lost something? And you become so desperate that you're flipping over couches and turning up rugs and searching drawers that you know there's no way it's in that drawer, but you're going to check anyways. I imagine that that's the scene as this lady is rummaging through her house and leaving no corner unsearched. And when she finds the coin that completes the collection, there is celebration that overflows her house into the streets. And then Jesus summarizes the three with the most elaborate parable in chapter 15 of Luke's gospel. And we call it the prodigal son because it's labeled that way in our Bible. But Jesus is going to shed some light on identity. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in Luke chapter 15. But first, will you bow your heads and pray with me for this word? Lord, we thank you for your presence in this place. God, you are so sweet and so available, and you draw our hearts to you. 
so that you can love and nurture us, so that you can minister to us, because you are the only one worthy, as Nathaniel said, to break open the seal of the scroll of our life and to heal all those broken places that make up our story. I pray that I would be invisible and that, Lord, you would speak directly to the people by your words. I pray that you'd give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and that we would forever mark this day as a change in our lives. And we celebrate what you're doing in this place. In Jesus' holy name we pray. And everyone said, amen. All right. So, this third parable is found in verse 11. And I'm going to read out of the NASB translation. But Jesus says it like this. He says, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that is coming to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, went on a journey to a distant country, and there he squandered his estate in wild living. Your translation might say, in prodigal living. This parable gets labeled the prodigal son, but Jesus never actually calls him the prodigal son. He says there was a son, not a bad son, doesn't call him a selfish son. He just says there were two sons, and one of them said, Dad, I want what's coming to me prematurely. I want it now. And in taking what was rightfully to be his and traveling off to this far country, it says that he fell into prodigal living. The, the problem is when we fall into sin, when we are ensnared by the enemy, a lot of times what we allow to define us is the sin. The son who fell into prodigal living becomes the prodigal son. We get these labels, addict, cheater, liar. We, we get labeled by society and what happens is we begin to identify with the labels handed to us by our failures. And we end up wearing them as badges around. And instead of, hi, I'm John, nice to meet you, it's, hi, I'm a liar. Hi, I'm a cheater. Hi, I don't deserve to go by my name, so you should know me by my sin. And that's what we see happening in this son. In fact, in the verses that follow, it says that the times got so bad that a famine hit and the boy had wasted all of the inheritance he was given. And so he became desperate. The problem was he wanted the father's blessing. He wanted what the father could give him because having the father wasn't enough. Think about this. When does an inheritance come to you? When someone passes away and wills it to you. In this Jewish culture, the son basically said, Dad, you're as good as dead to me, so go ahead and give me what I 
deserve. He wanted what the Father could give, while at the same time looking the Father in the eyes and saying, you're not enough. Your presence, you being here, what you can impart to me and teach to me and love on me, it's not enough. And so often, sometimes when we fall into despair, into sin, we recognize that we've, we've even done that ourselves to the Lord, to our friends, to our family. We, sin is selfish 100% of the time. And so we begin to take on this identity of, I need this, but I don't need God. Oh, I want health. I want blessing. I want finances. I want, I just don't need him. And that's what happens to the son. And so he goes off into this far land, and in desperation it says he's hired or he's, he's cleaved to a stranger, a citizen of the foreign land. This is not somebody who loves him. This is somebody who uses him. And he uses him to feed his pigs. Now in Jewish culture, they viewed pigs as unclean so they wouldn't eat them. This was a step beyond that in disgrace in that it, it wasn't even you have to eat the pig, it's that you have to feed the pig that you won't even eat. You have to lay in the filth of the pig. And this stranger was not a father, he was not a friend, he didn't care about this young man, he just needed somebody, so he used him. And when we find ourselves far away from home, when we find ourselves on a journey that maybe we didn't plan for, and things happened around us that we couldn't control, suddenly we're running with the wrong crowd, and we get upset when we realize we're being used. The world wants what you can give them, but they don't want you. The minute the party is over, the minute the money dries up, the minute the drugs aren't available, your friends aren't either. Because they want something from you. They just don't want you. This citizen needed a hired hand to feed his hogs, but he didn't love the boy. And so just as the son says, Dad, I want what, I want what you have, Give me what I need, but I don't want you. Suddenly, the citizen is saying, I don't really care about you, but I need you to go feed my pigs. And so this young man is beaten up. He's, he's tired. He's hungry. And he gets so low and so alone, he's looking at what the pigs are eating. Not even the pigs. He's looking at what they're eating and says, if I could just eat that, I'd settle for that because that's what I've been reduced to. In the brokenness that I feel, in the loneliness of being used by people who I thought cared about me, here I am sitting in the mess that I created. But luckily, it's in that pig pen that the son realizes something. It says in verse 17, but when the son when he came to his senses, he said, wait, how many of my father's hired laborers have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here from hunger. I will set out and go to my father, 
And I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me as one of your hired laborers. The son realizes that the only way forward is the way home. He recognizes that there's a long path he's going to have to walk back to home. And I'm sure he walked at a very slow pace. Charles Spurgeon says, slow are the feet of repentance, but swift are the feet of mercy. And as this young man saunters back home with his head hung low, he begins to rehearse an apology speech. Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I'm not asking for you to take me back in. Just let me be one of the hired laborers. Can I, can I tell you that because that's what that young man had been in this lowest season, a hired laborer to feed pigs, it was the only thing he could identify with. So he goes back home not saying, Dad, take me back in. It's your old boy. It's your son. Here I am. He says, I'm going to go home and I'm going to say sorry. And I'm just going to hope and beg that dad will at least see me as a hired servant. Because that's what I am in this strange land. I might as well come back and be that at home. At least he knew there was safety in his father's house. But what he had forfeited in the, in the pig pen was his identity. And now he can't see himself as anything other than what somebody would want to use. Even his father. His picture of the father is, at least I'll be safe. I'd rather be used there than here. So he starts the journey home with forfeited identity. In verse 20 it says, So he set out and came to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And he ran swift are the feet of mercy. And he embraced him. And he kissed him. Now, the father saw him while he was still far off. That means something to me. That means that the father never stopped looking at the horizon. He was standing on that porch day in and day out. I bet there were times where his wife had to come to him and say, Honey, it's dark out here. Come inside. You can stand out there again tomorrow. But he spots his son when he's a far way off and he runs to him. And he hugs him and he kisses him. There's two reasons I believe that he ran. Number one, that's his boy. He's excited to see his son. He loved his son and he never for one day gave up on him. But number two, one of the foundational ten commandments of the Old Testament was honor thy father and thy mother. And in Jewish culture, the penalty of breaking any of the 613 laws of Moses was pretty severe, but especially the 10 was punishable by death. 
So because of the disrespect that this boy showed his father, because of the departure from their culture and the running away from home and the sinking down low into the pit and being tied to other people who were strangers and foreigners in a far off land, when he returned home, the culture said, you actually are coming back home to die. You deserve death because you broke the rules. The father sweeps him up in his arms, not just because he missed him, but because he was there to protect him. When you start to make that journey back home, you'll find that not only has God not given up on you, but he's there to wrap you in his arms and protect you. He's there to cover you. He's there to embrace you. And while you're trying to get out your rehearsed apology, he's too busy kissing you. And telling you that he loves you. He's too busy grabbing you and saying, I don't need your excuses. I just want your cheek so I can kiss you until they blush in embarrassment. Because I'm still your dad. And I'm here to protect you and love on you. Because I'm not going to use you. I've been waiting on this porch for you to come home. Day in and day out. In fact, the father shows us in the story that what our heavenly father wants to do is hug us out of our shame. When you are in the lowest pit and you come back on that journey of repentance, what comes back often with you, attached to you, is shame, condemnation, guilt. The father shows us how he deals with shame. He hugs it out of us. He completely embraces us and covers us until there is no more shame to be had. That's just what he does. There's a a Presbyterian minister who has a, a book about Jesus called Gentle and Lowly. And in that book is a beautiful quote. He says, we think that in our sin and in our filth, that we're so detestable to God that he stands afar off and judges us. He said, what makes you cringe most makes him hug the tightest. The worst thing you've ever done, he's made provision to cover. The worst identity you've ever assumed, he's ready to call you son and daughter. It's it's interesting to me that we can get so bogged down in what we've done and what we've become that we forget and then when we get back home, the, the nagging voices in our head try to tell us, yeah, but you're just a servant. You're, you're nothing. You messed up. Wait till the Father finds out what you've done. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. This is the Lord speaking to Jeremiah, but I believe it pertains to us. He says, before I knit you together in your mother's womb, I knew you. Before I formed you, I knew you. Not just the good stuff. I knew the bad stuff. I was praying about this one time, and the Lord spoke to me so clearly. He said, you realize I formed hands in the womb that would one day nail mine to the cross? The Roman centurions that nailed Jesus to the cross They were formed in a womb just like you and I. 
the worst thing you could have ever done. The Father knew it before he even put you together. And you might be thinking, man, I hope the Lord doesn't find out about that. Too late. He knew it when he designed you. He formed hands in the womb that would nail his to the cross, but he still stretched out his hands and provided redemption for all people. There's a a minister who shared a beautiful story, and I think about it all the time when I think about this story. He said that there was this tapestry weaver, and he was known for making beautiful tapestries that were hand-woven together. And towards the end of his life, he knew he needed to take on an apprentice to pass on what he had learned. And so, he trains up this apprentice, and they decide they're going to commission their first work together. It's going to be a joint tapestry that they're going to weave together, master and apprentice. So they weave this design, and they, they create this beautiful tapestry, and they put it on display for everyone to see. And the people come from all around, and they marvel at the beauty and the perfection, the perfection of this tapestry. And so in conversation, comments start to come up, and the people start to praise the master, and they say, you're such a good teacher. You taught your apprentice so well that they didn't even make a single mistake. Man. You're such a good teacher. And the master tapestry weaver stood back with a smile on his face. And he said, oh, it's not that the apprentice didn't make mistakes. It's that I, as the master, anticipated the mistakes. And I wove them into the design. The Lord wove you together by design. And the things that make you cringe most make him hug tightest. Because you see, he's already woven your story. He's already anticipated your pig pen season. And he's ready to complete the rest of the tapestry with the portions where you return home. Colossians 2.14 says something profound. It doesn't say that there's no record of our wrongs. It doesn't say that there's no list of things we've messed up and done wrong or our failures aren't documented. In fact, there's quite a list mounting that our enemies love to put together for the moments when we're at our weakest. But Colossians 2.14 says Jesus, he canceled the record of the charges against us and he took it away by nailing it to his cross. That list of everything you've ever done wrong, it's covered by his blood. Nailed to a tree that our Lord and Savior hung on for you. Not to force you to come home, but to give you the opportunity to come home. See, the beautiful thing about love is if it's not in both directions, it's not truly love. And so when Christ came and he took all of the records of wrong that were ever written about you by anyone and he 
canceled them by nailing it to the cross that he hung on for you, he stretched out his arms and he said, I'm going to give you the chance to come home, but I can't force you to do it. You can die in the pig pen if you choose to. But Jesus, by design, created through his sacrifice a path home for us. Paul, the writer of Colossians, was audacious enough to say that because of the work of the cross, you and me, we can stand before the Father in original innocence, he calls it, as if you'd never sinned. As if you'd never sinned. That list of wrongs canceled. And now the Father sees you by his original design. Doesn't mean the mistakes didn't happen but it means he wove it into the part of your story to perfect who you are so when he sees you, he sees through the cross an innocent son and an innocent daughter. That's the love of God. Now, let's finish the story. In verse 21, chapter 15, the son said to him, remember, he's in the midst of getting hugged and kissed on and Loved on, and the son's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. Father, I've, I've rehearsed this. Let me get it out. I've, I've got this apology speech. I need you to hear it. Father, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, not to the son, but to the slaves, the servants, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and slaughter it. Let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. The father didn't even have time to respond to his apology speech because he'd already covered it. He didn't have to justify with the law of Moses. He'd already covered it. He provided a way to escape the penalty of sin by inviting the son back into his home and saying, servant, are you kidding me? We're celebrating that my son, which was lost, which was dead, is now home and alive. And he says, bring out the best robe. Now, I just want to bring this to your attention really quickly. Remember the son saying, I'm not even worthy to be called a son. Just make me one of your hired laborers. And he tells the father, just let me be a servant. I can tell you that what we can interpret from this is that the father was probably pretty wealthy since he had hired hands and he had sons and he had land and inheritance. So he was probably pretty wealthy. I'll say this. I can tell you that in this case, likely the person with the best robe in the house was probably the father. And he tells the servants, bring out the best robe. And in doing this, the father is taking the son's forfeited identity, robing him, as Isaiah says, in robes of righteousness identified by the father. And he says, not only will I not accept you as just a servant because I'm not here to use you, I'm here to love you, but I'm going to wrap you in a cloak that looks like me so that when other people see you, they say, oh, that's the father's boy because nobody is allowed to touch his robe, so that must be a son. Servants don't get access to the best robes. Sons do. 
And not only is there repentance on display, but there is reclaimed identity for this boy who had surrendered himself to saying, I'll just go back and beg to be a servant. And the father said, I'm going to make you look like me. So there's no confusion. I will not allow you to live beneath your potential. And everybody in the land is going to know you're my boy. Because I'm going to dress you like me. I'm going to love you. And I'm going to celebrate you. Because it doesn't matter what you've done. I wove it into your story. And now, redemption is available. The Lord makes something so beautiful out of someone so broken. I know that because that's my story. That's many of your story. The Lord makes something so beautiful out of someone who's so broken. What we have to acknowledge is, when we've said, I I don't need the Father's presence, and we've gone away, and we've squandered it all, and we know we're far from home, and we've been used by the world and used in our sin by people who have spit us up and chewed us up and spit us out by people who have rejected us. Man, the rejection that we feel in that moment, if we will but recognize that the path home is already available and we'll get up and we'll walk home and in our repentance, we'll allow the Father to hug us and love us and robe us in his righteousness so that we are identified once again as father and son recognizing that this was all part of his plan by design. The Bible says Jesus was crucified before the foundations of the world. God answered the problem before it ever happened. And he's the answer for your problems, whether they've already happened or whether you're sitting in the middle of them now. The part that we have to own is that we have to stand up And start on that path home. We have to start walking. But as we start walking, he'll come running. And he covers us and he loves us. And that is what you were born for. That's your purpose, not to be used. Your purpose is to be loved as a son and as a daughter. And to accept anything less is to deny what the Father has for you and has had for you since the beginning, regardless of where you're at now. There's a path home, and it's through Jesus. Will you stand with me this morning? And I want to invite the prayer team to come to the front. Thank you for listening today to The Living Godcast. We trust and pray that you are blessed by today's word. If you would like to contact us for prayer or for more information about Church of the Living God, please visit our Facebook page at WinCityCOLG or give us a call at 859-745-1865.